Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, we're honoured to have Neil Pearson joining us. Neil is a physical therapist, yoga therapist, author, researcher, professor at the University of British Columbia, faculty in three yoga therapy programs, and a pain care advocate. He's the founding chair of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's Pain Science Division. He's involved in research and has written numerous peer-reviewed papers on yoga, yoga therapy, and pain. He's a consultant to Partners in Canadian Veterans Rehabilitation Services and Lifemark. He's a past board member for Pain BC, Canada's premier nonprofit transforming the way pain is understood and treated. He co-authored Yoga and Science in Pain Care in 2019, authored the Patient Education ebook, Understand Pain, Live Well Again in 2008 and is a lead contributor to many free patient resources offered by Pain BC. Neil provides physiotherapy and yoga therapy to veterans at the Broken Squirrel Clinic in Courtney, BC. In this episode, we talked about what pain-informed movement is, its underlying cognitive and neurophysiological mechanisms, and practical considerations on implementing pain-informed movement. Enjoy! Hi, Neil. Thank you so much for being on Paincast. I look forward to our discussion today. How are you doing? I'm really well, thanks. How are you today? I'm good, too. Thank you. To start us off, can you introduce who you are, what you do, and what a typical week looks like for you? Okay. So I'm Neil Pearson, and I'm a physiotherapist, and I'm a yoga therapist, and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia. And a typical work week these days, I've actually just started working in a private practice, interdisciplinary rehab for veterans. So I'm doing that two days a week, specifically working with veterans who have complex chronic pain, addiction, PTSD, all those comorbidities. For a lot of the rest of the three days a week, I, I work as a consultant for LifeMark Clinics across Canada. So we've been building a foundational knowledge in pain for all their staff. And now they actually have this new Veteran Affairs Canada contract. So they're now looking at sort of up-leveling the education to a much more advanced knowledge of pain management when it's much more of a complex issue. So I work for them mostly those other three days a week, although I also, in the midst of things, well, I guess it's at my nighttime work, I also do mentorship for a wide range of healthcare professionals with the British Columbia Adaptive Mentorship Network. And I also, I have my own personal mentorship program that I take people through, which is a nine month long, basically very in-depth every month. People get to read a book and write a report on it and read research studies. And we go through assessment and treatment protocols for people with chronic pain and some of the IASP curriculum. We do that over a month. So I, I work on giving people feedback and things like that. And I guess the last thing that I'm involved with here and there is consulting in a few different research projects. I work alongside with uh, Lisa Carlasso, who does a lot of work for people with knee osteoarthritis. And so we're bringing in some of the yoga into those studies to see if yoga would be advantageous as well. And have just finished and just uh, looking at getting published a scoping review on yoga for veterans with chronic pain. Wow, you do a lot of things. I do. <laughs> apparently, yeah, the night times apparently are work sometimes, right? 
Yes, I totally echo with that. I mean, with Paincast, a lot of these are nighttime work for me as well. But I imagine you similarly are really passionate about what you're doing. So you enjoy what you're doing in the nighttime too. Yeah, very much. That's awesome. So today we're talking about movement and pain and it is evident that you have a lot of experiences and still doing a lot in this area. What got you passionate about this subject? Well, the big thing that got me passionate about the whole area of chronic pain and really into the area of movement and pain was that um, you know, I graduated in 1985 and there were no courses on pain. You know, we learned pain as a symptom. We learned this very biomedical or biomechanical perspective on pain. And very quickly after I graduated, I kept on running into patients who would tell me about their pain. And what they told me didn't match with what I understood from school. And so I guess I did something really odd. I decided that what I learned in school must be wrong and that I should listen to what the patients said because there really weren't even any good textbooks. I mean, in the 1980s, there was the textbook of pain. And so really it was, it was the gap of, you know, this is what I had understood about pain but it didn't really help with people who had chronic pain problems at the time. And so I started to just get interested and talk to people and start reaching out to see really what others had to say. And it was hard in the 1980s because the 1980s and the 1990s were really decades of a very biomechanical look. If you see the research on low back pain in those times, it was all about, you know, is it the disc? Is it the joint? Is it, the, you know, this movement? Very, very biomechanical. And so it really comes back to the idea that, that people were telling me about pain was stuff that I didn't understand. And I was trying to figure out how to use the information that they could provide to give some guidance as to how to help other people. And then really by the end of the 1990s, there were starting to get more people actually talking about pain. Interdisciplinary pain management programs were starting to bring in a lot more movement and cognitive behavioral therapy. And then there were you know, people like Lewis Gifford and Mike Shacklock and then Lorimer, Mosley and David Butler all sort of started to come out. And of course, that got me even more interested because it didn't feel so isolated anymore. Mm. So that was what got you interested with basically like, you know, the experiences with the patients that you were treating and then later on an emerging scholarship in this area. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people who get interested in pain now, they hear about the science of it, and the science sounds really interesting, and it draws them in. Mm. Uh, whereas I was much more drawn in by the patient's story and looking for answers more from the lived experience of pain side of it. And I know there's a lot of other people that get drawn into their pain because of their own personal pain experience, or or maybe there was someone in their family or someone they knew who had a chronic pain condition, and they started to realize that there were such massive gaps in the area. So I was seeing gaps in the area, but much more just working with the individuals and trying to find trying to find solutions that made sense. So the story sort of you mentioned all the way up till about the 90s. What about between 90s and right now? You're still in this space, still doing a lot. What is the journey like? Oh, the journey was... Um, so I have to say that at the end of the 1990s and at the beginning of the 2000s, there actually were a few years that uh, when I was living in Vancouver, and it was really great because Lorimer Mosley was coming to Vancouver once or twice a year, and he would do these little sessions. And every time I came, I'd learn more and get to know more and try more things, but also started to see the other people who were consistently showing up for these sessions. 
and then really started to reach out across Canada. So in the in the early 2000s, there were a few of us physiotherapists in Canada who were really interested in this. And Diane Jacobs was sort of the person who brought a bunch of us together, Dave Walton and Debbie Patterson, Susan Tupper, and Leslie Singer. There was sort of this core group at Mike Sangster. We all sort of got together and decided that there were things that we could do together, things that we could share. And we were with the, the genesis of creating the paid science division. And I think at that point, we started to see more people were starting to teach about pain neurophysiology. It became this very, um, we'd have to say, a very neurocentric view on pain, whereas it had been before very much a biomechanical view or tissue pathology view. And there was sort of shifting away from that into a neurocentric view. And as, as we sort of watch this evolution, right, because things now are coming around much more to a, a more whole person or biopsychosocial perspective than ever before. And so it's just been this continuing evolution of all of us in healthcare starting to realize that there's something more that we could do and that we could actually work together as teams in a better way. And mostly it doesn't feel quite so lonely now as it used to, because it certainly just felt like we were all doing our own thing and then just getting together every once in a while to share ideas. Whereas now, you know, you go to the, the Canadian Pain Society meetings and the physiotherapy meetings, and you start to see this poor group of people continuing to evolve what we understand around pain and pain care. That's right. And also more advocacy in Pain Canada from the physiotherapy profession, which is really, really good to see. So today we're talking about pain-informed movement, which is something we'll go into and explore a little later on. Where did this start in your journey? Yeah, so pain-informed movements, you know, this term that we use, basically it's how do we use pain science to inform how to help a person recover movement again. And what we kept on seeing was that people in pain were being told that they needed to move. And of course, most people recognize that movement is part of health, you know, to be healthy, whether it's spiritual health or psychological health or mental health or physical health, you need to move. And so most people with chronic pain sort of knew that they should, but they didn't know how or they didn't know how to succeed. And so we kept on looking at, you know, what are the different options that are people doing? Because the uh, it's still here now, but even in the early 2000s, the sort of dominant view was that you should get people to do movement that's time contingent. You should use like this operant conditioning model that, you know, don't use pain as your guide because it's not going to be able to help you well enough. So what we want you to do is to, we'll figure out your baseline of how much you can do, how many minutes or, you know, some sort of time thing. And then we'd say, okay, we want you to start there and then we're going to progress you up. We're going to slowly get you to do a little bit more, a little bit more. And, and the message was that, on the good days, stick with the plan. And on the bad days, stick with the plan. So make it time contingent. Don't make it contingent on the pain. Which makes some sense from the idea that pain is not an accurate indication of tissue health. Therefore, it's not an accurate indication of when you should carry on movement or not. But it's interesting that what we did was, um, and really I think because we're influenced by the psychologist, is we shifted the person's guidance away from self to this external thing, you know, to time. And what we started to hear was that some people saying to us that what they were actually doing was using their own internal information as a guide. So some people saying is, you know, if I can't breathe calmly, I know that I'm doing it too hard. 
or if my muscles are starting to really get tense, I know I'm doing too much. Or if I'm starting to get really anxious that I'm going to regret this later, then I know that this is too much. And so some people were actually even asking us the question is like, is it okay if I listen to that? Because they've been told to not listen to the pain. And we started to hear some patients were actually telling us that what they would do is listen to multiple alarm systems. So almost like you think of um, your body can protect you or the systems of you can protect you by giving you pain because that'll make you stop or change your behavior. But the systems can also, or the organism can protect you by making you hold your breath, right? Because you'll sort of have to change your behavior if you do that. Or it could protect you by making your muscles weak or protect you by making your muscles get really tense, right? It could protect you by making you anxious. And so we started to, to play around with this idea and, and listening to some patients who said that what they actually were doing was listening to multiple alarm systems. And so we started to hear this idea of paying attention to the breath and body tension and pain and the mind. Now, what that reminded me of when patients were telling me that they were doing this with some success was that it really reminded me of what we did with people who have rheumatoid arthritis. So if you have rheumatoid arthritis, we tell people don't just use the pain as your guide. We say use pain, heat, redness, and swelling. And it started to occur to me is that the reason we tell them to use multiple alarm systems is because no one alarm system is good enough to tell you when to start. So pay attention to a bunch of things. And of course, then this, this logical thing going on in my mind is like, so none of these things by themselves are accurate. And so we are asking people to pay attention to, say, four different inaccurate alarm systems. And is that just, just a whole bunch of illogic? But then I started to think again as a physiotherapist and realized, well, if you have shoulder pain, I don't do one test to figure out what's wrong with your shoulder. I do a bunch of different tests that all have certain sensitivity and specificity because no one test on its own is fully accurate. And so it started to occur to me as well, maybe we could use that same sort of model with people who have ongoing pain is to, instead of getting them to pay attention to the pain, which is inaccurate, maybe we could get them to pay attention to their pain and their breath and their body tension and their mind and to put all those inaccurate things together to come up with a more useful guide as to when to continue and when to stop. It's really nice that you've been able to gather patient knowledge to help more patients. Just to clarify, the patient population we're talking about here, are they more so the chronic pain? Or if you have another term for them, what is the population like? I think all the things that we learned and as we put them together, it was really focused on people who have chronic pain. As we've gone on, it started to make sense that you don't really need to use this kind of a process when you are working with someone with an acute injury. And this is not a science-based statement, but it doesn't seem to matter what kind of movements you do with people who have acute pain, right? We give them good treatment and we just get the person moving, just get moving again, and it doesn't seem to matter. So I don't think it really applies to that group so much but it might apply to that group if they were pushing really hard, right? If a person was doing exercise when they wanted to know, you know, how do I get really close to my limit and still be in the safe place, right? So maybe you could use this kind of guidance there. I mean, that's certainly what we do with people who are coming to yoga classes is we teach yoga teachers these very same ideas as a way 
to keep the students more safe. Unfortunately, within the yoga world, there has been this attempt at keeping people safe by telling them, if it hurts, don't do it, which is really unfortunate. It may keep people safe, but it makes people afraid of pain, makes them fear avoidance and makes them feel, you know, if pain equals damage in their mind, then we're actually teaching them that they're fragile. If we're saying, you know, if there's any pain, stop. But anyway, so we found that it's helpful in that group when people are doing the postures of yoga. I think the other group that it's beneficial for is the group who's transitioning towards chronic pain. You know, getting this information to a person really early when the, you know, we're still stuck around this, right, is we don't know how to say when someone is actually transitioning towards chronic pain. There's no definitive diagnostic around this. But when we see people have an acute pain and they're not getting better like people normally get better, I would say we want to start this really early. The same as you'd want to start the pain education really early with that group. As soon as you see people not getting better, it would make sense to put it in there. Um, we've used this kind of model with people who have complex regional pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, low back pain, whiplash associated disorder, pretty much all the conditions. The one time that it doesn't work well is when people say that they don't notice a change in these things while they're doing it. They only know later. It's one of the groups of people we really don't understand, right? There's a group of people say, you know, while I'm doing the exercise, the pain doesn't get worse. While I'm doing the exercise, I don't start to feel anxious. It's not like my muscles are really getting tense. The alarms just aren't going on, yet I still pay for it later. And so we need to use a bit of a modification with that. Of course, when people say those things, a question I'll often ask the patient is, would you classify yourself as a masterful distractor? Someone who's really good at not paying attention to yourself. And if the person says, yeah, that's me. And I say, well, the system may work, but what we may need to do is get you to actually learn to pay attention to the subtle sensations of yourself in order for this work. I think there's a lot of us who have gone through life ignoring our body, sort of dragging our body around and paying little attention to it. Or people who have for some reason in life, just decided that listening to their body is not helpful. And so they've just done their best not to pay attention. So that could be a reason that it might not work. And some of the people I know who've tried using these things as well with people who have long COVID and that sensitivity to movement, sometimes it's like the same thing in that group as with people with fibromyalgia, as people say is, this doesn't work because I don't have any warning systems when I'm doing it. It's only later that I know whether I've done enough or did too much. Hmm. That's very interesting how you described different populations and what can it be helpful for. I suppose if we may go back to more of like how different patient characteristics affect how this system can be effective or vice versa. But I want to give audience sort of like a really good understanding of what pain-informed movement is. Can you try to illustrate, help our audience visualize what this is? Yeah, I'll go through it in two different ways. One was sort of a more generic and then talk about a specific movement. So before I get there, I just want to say a really important thing is that I don't think there's any one path that works for everybody. What I do know is that, you know, there are some people who can just grit their teeth and push through the pain and get better, even when they have chronic pain. That's not that common, but it happens, right? So, but anyway, there's more than one way to do this. This is just one way that, that seems to help a lot of people and the second piece of this is that not only does it help a lot of people, that we found that when we 
teach, whether it's physiotherapists or occupational therapists, kinesiologists, yoga teachers, whoever, these guidelines is that people seem to be able to take them pretty quickly into their clinical practice and get decent outcomes with it. That's it. Process. What we ask people to do at the beginning is to move enough that they start to feel their pain intensity increase. Now, we can pay attention to quality or location as well, but well, just for simplicity for now, we'll just think about pain intensity. So the person's got pain already, say in their shoulder, they're moving their arm, and we say, just lift your arm up to the spot where you start to feel the pain just start to increase. And when you get there, what we want you to do is ask yourself the question of, does my body feel safe here? And so if the person says, yes, it feels like my body is safe doing this, then we say, okay. So what we also want you to do is ask yourself the question of, will you be okay later if you do this? And again, if a person says, yes, I think I'll be okay later, then what we'd ask the person to do is to check in with their breath and see if they can actually calm their breath. And if the person says, yes, I can actually calm my breath down, say, okay, I want you to try one more thing. Why don't you just check in with your muscle tension and see if you can decrease your muscle tension. And so with this kind of guide, we're asking people to go to the edge of the increase in pain, ask those two questions of, am I safe? Will I be okay later? And then to check in if you can calm your mind. And then the next thing is, well, can you calm your breath? And the next thing is, can you calm your body tension or muscle tension? So pain is an alarm system, but each of these other things can be considered as an alarm system. Now, if you got to a spot where the pain started to increase and you said, I feel like I'm going to pay for this later, then you're probably pushing too much. Or if you got to a spot where the pain was increasing and you couldn't calm your breath, that would be another indication that maybe you're pushing too far or it's time to change what you're doing. The same thing with muscle tension. If your muscles are starting to grip and you can't release tension, then you may have gone too far already and you need to modify it. So we think of someone who has low back pain and the person has found that for a long time, bending forward and trying to lift anything, you know, say 10 pounds, is something that they're fear avoidant of at this point. They've learned that if they do this a bunch of times, they're actually going to be worse. So we say, all right, let's use this as part of progressive loading. Because we need you to be able to do this. You need you to be able to do this activity again. So what's happened at this point is your nervous system has become sensitized to this movement. When you do it, your alarms are stopping you before you actually need to stop. So what we want to do is figure out, like, how do we get you to that right edge? So how do we get you so that you could help to desensitize this, really? So we get you to, again, we get you to bend forward to that, just to that spot where you start to say, yeah, the pain's just starting to increase. And then ask yourself the question is, do you feel like this is safe to do for your back? And do I think I'll be okay later? And if, if you said, I don't think it's safe for my back, but I can see you really haven't bent your back forward, I can actually add in some information for you. I can say, like, I know you're telling me it doesn't feel safe. But what I want you to know is, based on how much you've moved your back and everything I know about this, is you are safe in this position, right? So you can give that person that information as a way to add in. But you still want the person to be in a place where they feel like they're not going to be worse later. You have to sort of play and modify as you go is to get a person to be able to go to the place where they can keep their breath calm and their body calm. And if you can get them to repeat it a number of times without the person being worse, and of course, this is part of the process of desensitizing. You're applying a stimulus. The system isn't doing its normal freak out. 
And so over time, depression becomes less fear avoidant, but it also starts to even allow the tissue to become more tolerant of the movement. So there are a couple of steps involved here. But one of the things that I appreciate about the steps is that patient is driving the process. They are in charge with the guidance of the physical therapist. And it seems to me this is a really empowering moment for them to realize that they can move in these positions. Exactly. And, you know, like everyone does in the pain world, sometimes we're going to use novel movement, or sometimes we'll get a person to do something that's a little bit out of the normal sort of pattern so that we can try not to, to turn on the systems that turn on all the protection, right? We might use some, you know, mild distraction, or we might get the person to, I don't know, sit at the edge of a chair and do the forward bend as opposed to standing and doing it. But we'd use all those same kinds of approaches. And when we start to do this at the beginning, it takes some time to get the person to understand it. But then once the person starts to get it, it doesn't take as much time to sort of pause and do all this because you can actually rapidly go through these steps inside your head as you're moving through the movement. But then us as physiotherapists, part of what we get to do is while we're working with the person is we get to watch whether the person is, their muscles are getting tense or watch to see if they are tensing their body because we're good at this, right? We're really good at noticing changes in people's bodies as they're moving. And sometimes the person is so focused on, you know, doing the movements and asking themselves the questions that they sort of forget about their breath or they forget about their muscle tension. And so we can give people that guidance to allow them to do this so that they can do more repetitions with less information, less information around threats. And I think that, you know, this is another key thing to think about this is that if you're doing painful movements, when you have the pain, well, that's actually an input, right? The pain is produced by you, but the pain immediately becomes another input into you that's saying, hey, there's something potentially dangerous here. And so, which would mean that you're more likely to have more pain. If we can, while you're moving, and even though it hurts a little bit, if we can get you to keep your breath calm, when you keep your breath calm, you're putting information into the system that says it's not so dangerous. And when you can keep your muscle tension low, you're putting information into the system that says it's not so dangerous. For those people who've heard of mostly in Butler's Dims and Sims, the danger in me and the safety in me, hopefully they're hearing that the idea here is to increase the safety in me messages while you're doing movements and to specifically use calm breath and keeping your muscle tension low and keeping your mind calm as these powerful messages. And if I were to throw in one theoretical point around this, I really believe that when you keep your breath calm and when you keep your muscle tension low, that these are actually super powerful sims. So most of the times when we talk about sims and dims, we don't talk about prioritizing them or which ones are more powerful than others. Certainly within individuals, there are certain things that are more or less triggering than others. But I really think that calm breath and calm muscle tension are almost universal as things that when you can keep those calm when you're moving, then you'll succeed at desensitizing the nervous system even better because they seem to be sort of higher priority sims than some of the other things that we work with. Hmm. Yeah, I'm interested in getting a little more into that physiology behind each step. 
And I really agree with you that I think calm breath is a powerful physiological tool in the autonomic nervous system that it gives you a very quick switch from the fight or flight sort of sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system. So this is one of the ways how pain-informed movement can help people address their increased pain and in movement. What are some other evidence underlying or principles or rationale underlying the steps? Right. The first idea of moving to the increase in pain, the first increase in pain. So we're pretty darn certain that the way the nociceptive apparatus works is that it warns you before damage. So if you do something and you can stop where the pain first starts to increase, everything around the science would suggest the nociceptive system turns on to give you a buffer between when the alarm starts to get more and when damage would happen. So that's the sort of first principle. The second principle about pain is that pain by itself is not an accurate indication of how much to exercise or when to stop. And so we can't just use pain by itself. And so that's sort of second idea of let's listen to multiple alarm systems rather than one alarm system. As you said, when we look at breathing, calm breathing, we shift from the sympathetic drive towards the parasympathetic drive. And, you know, we can get a little bit more refined around that too, because it seems to be, it's when we're exhaling that you have a bigger parasympathetic drive. And so extending the exhale can be beneficial. And, you know, so we can start to play with exactly how we get a person to breathe while they're doing it. But the essence of it at the beginning really is to get the person to do whatever they can to try to calm their breath. And we also know that when you calm your breath down, there's a shift even in uh, heart rate variability, which is a heart rate variability is a surrogate measure of physiological arousal or sympathetic nervous system activity. And so when we can get our breath calmer, we can start to increase our heart rate variability, which is an indication that we are decreasing physiological stress. And of course, when we do that, this is where there's now a gap in the science we believe that when you do that, when you get that, that that's when you will decrease the, the sensitivity of the nociceptive apparatus. But I've never seen any research where they've actually shown that. What they have shown is the human behavior side is if I get you to put your hand in a cold presser test thing, right, in a bucket of ice water or put a thermal probe on your arm or compression on your arm and get you to do calm breathing, you will say out later most of the time. You'll keep your hand in the heat or the cold longer or the pressure more. That the calm breathing can change our pain tolerance and change our pain threshold. And I, of course, you can't study that quite so much in humans when you get down to the, the core activity and nociceptive apparatus because, you know, ethically we can't do tissue biopsies and stuff that you would want to be able to do. But we can see that it changes the behavior and then we sort of, project from there, from what we know from basic science of the nociceptive apparatus, thinking that it's probably actually making changes in it as well, that it's changing. And this is the part that we don't know. How much is this changing the peripheral neurons? How much of it is changing neurotransmitters? How much of it is bottom up? How much of it is top down? Is it everything? I mean, you can look at some of the research and see that slow breathing actually changes neurophysiology in a different way than does placebo and different than from mindfulness meditation. So it's sort of interesting. You can see that breathing has this fairly unique effect compared to 
other things. But there's still a whole lot of gaps in the research around that. I think we see the same thing around muscle tension is that we sort of theoretically we get it and we see the change in human behavior and the change in pain when people start to release muscle tension. But the exact physiological mechanisms of this were not as clear on at this point, in part because the, the research hasn't been of high enough quality to answer those questions. This is really fascinating to me. I mean, it's understandable why research hasn't quite caught up yet. Like, how do you even measure muscle tension? How do you operationalize that concept? Yeah, that's one of the really tough ones, right? Is like, what exactly is increased muscle tension? Right? We still don't fully understand that. And it's when it's hard to reproduce something in an animal model, then it becomes we sort of lack more evidence. And the breathing stuff is really fascinating, too, because given how much breath work is used in mental health and in musculoskeletal pain areas in sports, it's really amazing how little research there is around breath. The skeptic would say, well, it's hard to monetize breathing techniques. And that's probably one of the reasons that there hasn't been a lot of money put into it. Right? We tend to do research on clinical things that we can turn into something we can sell. And it's hard to turn breathing techniques into something we can sell. Actually, what got me quite appreciative of how breathing can be a really powerful tool is Andrew Huberman's podcast. I listen to a lot of his stuff about neurophysiology, neurobiology, and actually how much evidence is there on breathing. And I started doing yoga nidra, which the other term for it, non-sleep deep breaths. And it's been really helpful even for me in terms of focus, drive, and doing work motivated. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where there's staunch behavioral research. We need to be careful. If I just sort of segue away from this just for a moment. We see that meditation techniques have these massive changes in so many people. But if you were to go and actually just today spend a little bit of time looking at you know, what do the systematic reviews around meditation say around pain and chronic pain? And they're very clear that the quality of evidence level is still low to very low for these things. And when you look at the effectiveness around meditation, which surprised the heck out of me that this meta-analysis, they were able to find only 12 studies. This is a, like a last year study, right? They only found 12 studies that had about 1,000 people total in them that they thought the research was good enough to even look at. And so when they did this, what they said was that the evidence was still low quality, but that there were no durable changes in a person's chronic pain when they were doing meditation, which surprised me a whole lot. Not only was it no durable changes, but they were finding that people were doing the techniques and they weren't actually getting a clinically significant change in pain intensity. So there was a statistically significant change in pain intensity, but not a clinically significant change in pain intensity, which surprises me a whole lot because there's so many people that we see that it works so well on. This may be the same thing around breathing or may not, but part of it, it shocks me because in pain management, the intervention that patients scoff at the most at the beginning is breathing. They're like, really? I just told you all about my low back pain and my surgeries and all this stuff. And you want me to breathe? I don't think it'll hurt me. Right? Sort of the, 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 you get at the beginning. But then at the end, when people go through pain management and ask, you ask them what was the, you know, the most important stuff, calm breathing seems to be one of the things that most people identify. Again, that's not from research. That's just from clinical experience. So we have this idea that it's super powerful. But then 
we still don't have the evidence to back that up yet. And I think it's an interesting thing is that if I had a chronic pain and my pain was 6 out of 10 or whatever number it is, and you did something that gave me a moderate change in my pain, I mean, that may not sound great, but I think it possibly could be phenomenal. It could like change everything in my world if we could change that way. And so I think sometimes we get our language of science and our language of what's happening in human behavior get a little bit messed up, you know, because we're trying so much to use the evidence-based approach. But anyway, as I'm saying all this, I would still like, I still hang my hat on the idea that if people with a sensitized nervous system can move with more evidence of safety, that what we've seen is when people do that, that they can recover more ease of movement, recover more function, and they can move without being worse at the end. You know, part of the reason I would say is why do you want to work on the breathing? When people ask me like, you know, why do you want people to do the calm breathing? It's because I'd say I'm a physical therapist and I know that when people can move more, that's when they'll stay better, better. And so anything that I can do to help them to move with more ease is what I want to do. And that's really where these the, the pain informed movement guidelines come from, is what can we do to help the person to move with more ease now? Because if they can continue to do that, they can desensitize the nervous system more, and they can actually put load on the tissues of their body that give their body a chance to actually recover health and strength. So initially when I asked about some of the other principles behind pain-informed movement, one of the things you talked about is how when you have the first pain signal, it is the body's alarm system to signal that, okay, this is getting uncomfortable and rarely to the point of tissue damage. I would like us to Elaborate a little more on that, just for the audience who are not familiar with the idea of that buffer zone and how it can change between people with and without chronic pain. Yeah, and um, I'm not sure if it originated with Lorna Mosley, but he was the first person I heard talking about the buffer, which is interesting because I think I've always talked about it, but never called it that. And I think it really works to call it that. So uh, the example that we can use is the idea of... Um, if I were to pull my index finger back gently and just sort of pull it back to feel a stretch along the palm side of my finger or any joint, like pull my wrist back, pull my shoulder back, I stretch it. At first, as I'm going into this movement, the first thing I would feel would be a stretch in the tissue, right? The tissue is saying, hey, I'm being elongated. It sends that information. So I know that if I keep on going, if I keep on increasing the stretch, at some point, as I increase the intensity of the stretch, it's going to turn from a feeling of stretch to something that I would say it's getting uncomfortable. I mean, I may not use the word uncomfortable, discomfort, but it's sort of moving from a like a normal stuff to, oh, I'm getting a little bit worried about this. And at some point as I keep on going, it's going to get to the spot where I'm going to use the word pain to describe what I'm feeling. And as far as we know is that when you get into that sort of increasing discomfort and into where you call it pain, that's not your body saying you've damaged it. So you're having pain, but it's not because you damaged your body. You're having pain because the systems of you are saying, if you keep on doing this, it might not be a good idea. Or it might be the system saying, hey, maybe you don't want to keep on going, right? I jokingly say with patients, it's like my system is saying, hey, Dopey, if you keep on doing this, you're going to cause yourself harm. Listen up. 
But whatever it is, right, is there's this alarm system is there to tell you to actually give you pain as a way to get you to change your behavior even before your body's damaged. And this is sort of a normal thing. Now, as we mentioned earlier, sometimes people have become so disconnected from self. It's like the person doesn't feel anything until they're way into the pain. And if that's the case, what we often need to do is get people to take it easy with movement and stretches at the beginning and to teach the person how to re-engage with the subtle sensations of the body. But if the person is engaged with the sensations of the body, we say is, okay, there's, there's always that little buffer. And under a normal situation, the buffer is actually small, right? If I take my finger and I pull it back, the spot where it starts to be something I would call pain and the place where tissue damage happened there's a small distance between those. But if I have a sensitized nervous system, what actually happens now is the alarm is turning on even sooner than before. So now when I move into the stretch, I feel the pain increase and it's a longer distance away from where I would actually damage my body, which means that it's even safer to move to the edge of the increase in pain when you have a sensitized nervous system, which is Really an odd thing for people to learn, but when we're teaching people with pain this, it's important because what it feels like when you have chronic pain to most of us is that when that pain increases, we feel that our body is fragile, right? There's this sense of when the pain starts to increase like that, we have this feeling like we're either doing damage or very soon we're going to be damaging our body in a horrible way, which seems to be more of that protection stuff, right? It's like the systems of us coming up with visual images of brokenness to help to slow us down. Anyway, so one of the things that we want to get people to understand is that if you have chronic pain and you have a sensitized nervous system, there's actually a bigger buffer now. And so it's even safer to go there, even though it may not feel safe. And then, of course, what we want to do in that case is to show the person that what we want to do is make that buffer a little bit smaller and then make it a little bit smaller and just keep on making it smaller because as you make the buffer smaller, you'll be able to move more with more ease. And of course, if you can move more with more ease, not only will that can help you, you know, get more of your life back and help you desensitize stuff, we come back to it will allow your physical body to get healthier again, which we struggle with when we have ongoing pain. So in pain-informed movement, one of the education points that you would bring across is actually pain is an inaccurate indicator on its own. And this saying really it's when the body is sensitized to movement. Then when the buffer zone gets so large, that first initiation of pain, that's inaccurate as opposed to when we have a normally sensitized system. Is that right to say? I think we can go further with it, though, is that pain is never an accurate indication of what's going on through body. We typically say that it's more accurate or less inaccurate when you have acute pain. Yet even that we need to sort of sit back and have a thought of. I mean, even like brain freeze, right? The pain of brain freeze. The location's not accurate. The intensity's not accurate. And that's an acute thing, right? A paper cut totally inaccurate intensity the vast majority of times, right? So we often, we as healthcare professionals often have this idea that the pain is only inaccurate when it's chronic, but pain as a generality is inaccurate. It's just that it's even more inaccurate when you have chronic pain 
The thing is, if you have acute pain, you can treat it as being accurate and you'll be okay. But if in chronic pain, if you perceive that the quality of the pain, the intensity of the pain and the location of pain are accurately telling you what's going on, it's going to stop you way soon. I mean, the last big disc bulge that I had in my lower back, the systems of me decided that I had this visual image of brokenness and that whenever I would move my back and the pain would get worse, the image that was created was like my back was a green stick tree. And someone had taken that like that green stick branch and bent it back and forth. And so there are all those sharp, shardy bits on either side. And so whenever I would move my back, it felt, it hurt, but it felt like everything was being ripped inside my lower back. Of course, fully inaccurate, right? There's no way that anything like that could be going on. But it's this kind of thing that really gets in trouble when we have ongoing pain is because if you don't know that that is not what's going on, it's going to scare you enough, create enough fear that you're not going to move. And I think it's helpful if we get people to realize that pain is always inaccurate. Because I think a lot of people have had acute pain episodes that have been inaccurate. Whereas a lot of people haven't had other chronic pain episodes. And so if you can tell people chronic pain condition where it's definitely not and the quality or the intensity location is getting in the way of them getting better. If we can then go back to acute pain that people have had, like everybody's had brain freeze pretty much. Everyone's had paper cuts. Everyone's been kicked in the shin. The kick in the shin is another great explanation here. I could say, you know, sometimes we get hit in the shin hard enough that six months later, you still just touch that spot and it hurts like stink, right? Even though you just touch that spot and you know that's not an accurate indication of damage because you can look at it and you can see there's no bruise, there's nothing going on, but still it hurts a lot. And it's a great explanation because that particular thing is most definitely a sensitized nervous system. But for some reason, it's like the tissue right where you got hit has remained hypersensitive very locally. Whereas with chronic pain, we often end up with a hypersensitive nervous system that's more global. Explaining these things are so hard. And I think the, the more options we have, the better. But getting back to the movement guidelines, really the idea is to find a way to get people to understand is that, yes, that pain intensity or the quality are not accurate. And that part of that inaccuracy is that we know that as the pain starts to increase, and even though it might feel like you're being damaged, we know you're not if you're stopping when it just starts to increase. Yeah. Now, it seems to me it requires a lot of trust between the patient and the therapist for the patient to just accept that your pain is inaccurate. Do you find that they accept that easily? How do you go about that? By the time I'm talking to people about that, I've typically given them some of the education around pain. And in the midst of me giving people education around pain, one of the stories I take people through, again, based on some things that I learned from Lorimer and others, is the idea of talking about how pain is like vision. And so I'll show people visual illusions. And so when you look at a visual illusion, you're seeing something some way, but then you recognize that your system is actually getting mixed up in a way. And so when we look at visual illusions, we can start to get people to recognize that the reason that it's an illusion is that our visual apparatus does not give us the facts. Our visual apparatus give us the story, right? It takes in all the information and comes up with this visual experience for us. Whereas what we normally would think is that what you see is accurate factual information. 
And then extending that further with people to get people to realize that all of our perceptual apparatus do not give us the facts. They don't give us the main data points. The information is coming in and is getting processed so that what we experience has as much to do with what we know from the past as it does from what's going on now, right? To, to get people to recognize that our perceptual apparatus are not accurate. And when you can take people through experiences where they're looking at an illusion, say where something looks like it's really dark gray and another thing looks like it's really light gray, and then you can show them that those are actually the very same shade of gray, but our systems just don't see it that way, that experience is part of the reason that helps people recognize this. What I'm saying is the way to teach people about these things, the best way is to give the person an embodied experience, like an experience where it's, it's not just me sitting there telling the person that it's not accurate. It's me telling them a story or giving them, taking them through visual illusions. So what they've just gone through is recognizing, oh, okay, it's not actually accurate. And then you relate that back to the same kind of thing could be happening around pain. And I think this is part of the reason that the pain-informed movement works better is when we give people these embodied experiences that show them that this is the way things really work. And also shows them that their view of the way pain works isn't quite the way that pain actually works all the time. I think that's part of the beauty of using metaphor and story is a person can have an understanding about pain. And then you come along and you tell them this story and they're thinking, well, that story makes sense. But then they start to realize that the story is actually in, in contradiction from what they used to think about pain, which creates that cognitive dissonance and allows the person to question their beliefs about pain. Maybe I can segue a bit. So part of what we're saying around pain form movement is that it works better when we're actually able to explain pain better to the person. And one of the ways that we can explain pain better, it, instead of talking to people about it, it's, it's that embodied experience. And if we take that one step further is that part of the reason that pain form movement works is because it's actually a process of giving a person a new embodied experience. Because if the person says, whenever I do this movement, I get this much pain. And then we can actually take the person through, you know, guide them to go to the edge, keep their breath calm, keep their body calm, ask those questions, and they do it. And at the end of it, they say, well, you know, I can move with more ease, or I haven't made the pain as bad as before. What you've just done is shown the person that they have some influence over this, and it is at least in part changeable which to me is one of the really important things around pain education that I don't think we pay a lot of attention to is that one of the key things that we need to get people to know is that pain is not immutable or that pain is changeable, which is interesting because that hasn't come up in the NOI group's list of key factors. And I think it's key. I've never actually heard a patient say, oh, you mean pain's not immutable? Or, oh, you mean pain is changeable? No one's ever said that. But I think that's one of the core beliefs that we have about chronic pain because we've been trying to change it and it hasn't been changing. So our experience is it's unchangeable. And I think part of the pain education globally is to get people to realize that pain is something over which we have some influence. We then step into the pain-informed movement. The idea is not to tell the person that pain is changeable and they have some influence over it. It's actually to give them an experience of this. And of course, if you can give people that experience, you're now giving them an experience that's inconsistent 
with their previous thoughts about pain and pain care. And if you do it just once, it could be an outlier. But if you can do it repeatedly, right, if you can get the person to keep on coming back and set up a pattern where they keep doing this as part of their daily plan, it's that repetition of this experience that's inconsistent with their previous thoughts that will actually start to change the person's worldview to this idea of, well, pain is something that we can do something about. And even I have some influence over it. If you go back to the beginning, right, the reason that people come to us is because they tried to change it and it didn't. And that this, again, becomes really important to recognize that as a physical therapist, if we're giving people exercise to do and they're not doing it, sometimes the reason they're not doing it around pain is because whenever the person tried to exercise on their own before, they got worse, and that's why they walked in your door. So sometimes what we need to do is give them a different experience so that they'll actually do this at home. I think that's definitely one of the really appealing components of pain-informed movement. I think I remember reading in a 2015 paper, Nietzsche's and Mijis, summarizing five factors of a cognitive approach to pain that has an effect. Like one of the very important factors is that a new explanation of pain, other than having to be intelligible and appearing plausible, it should be shared and confirmed by direct environment of the patient. So that embodied experience in that cognitive perspective is really important. But what I'm also interested to hear from you is how we were talking about through pain-informed movement, we're trying to decrease that buffer zone so you can get more functional, you can go back to your daily movements without being so bothered. How does that decrease of buffer zone happen? So basically desensitization. And you were talking about with like safety in me versus danger in me. Can you just elaborate a little more on, on that? Sure. So when the person has chronic pain, this the language around this is so hard to sort of say appropriately. When the person has chronic pain, typically the protective mechanisms are in a more sensitized state. They're easier to fire off. They send more signals. They release different neurotransmitters. There's less top-down regulation. All that stuff is going on, right? There's those changes that we talk about in the peripheral and the central nervous system. There's also the changes in the immune system. There's also the changes in the hormone system. All that stuff is going on. So when we get people to do pain-informed movements, yes, we think that what we're doing is changing the top-down because the person becomes less afraid of movement. The person experiences that it's not going to be a catastrophe every time they move, right? So you start to, to change the person's cognitions, you start to change the person's emotions, and that's going to change the top-down information. At the same time as when you're doing pain-informed movements, we believe that the change in muscle tension that you're creating and the change in your breath and you know, the subsequent changes in your heart rate variability, this is now changing bottom-up signals that are going into the system that will help to desensitize it. So we think that you're getting this sort of whole person impact by doing this. And certainly as soon as we start to get people to move more, now you're getting changes that we don't know, like how much of this change is coming from the vascular system and the lymphatic system and the, the respiratory system in different ways that, you know, because we know that movement is a big, big piece of helping people to get back to life and have less pain and less suffering. So it becomes hard to say exactly, you know, what it is. So if I were to explain what do I think is actually happening, I would say is that when we start to do pain form movements, the changes that are happening are biopsychosocial and possibly biopsychosocial spiritual. I think we want to be careful of 
not just attributing these things to physical or not just attributing these things to psychological or even being careful as to say, you know, we're pretty sure it's decreasing fear and catastrophic thinking. Um, and we're pretty sure that it's changing muscle tone and, and even like pointing our fingers at those things. We just need to be careful that pain is so multifaceted and complex that it's almost like the answer is it works because it's actually changing the human through multiple paths or portals. And that's the best we know right now. You know, the, the research that looks at change in brain function, spinal cord stuff, we can start to hit it down, but it's so hard to know in the individual in front of us. And I think that's where we're getting a little bit stuck in the pain world generally is that we keep on looking for attribution of causality because we've really been trained for if we can figure out what's wrong, then we'll know what to fix. Whereas it's this so complex area, right? We've needed to tell people that, that chronic pain is a medical condition because they would not listen to us when we talked about pain any other way. But as we've done that, we've turned it into a medical condition where we're actually medicalizing stuff about it. We're looking for this sort of medicalized answer, which includes algorithms and processes like that. Yet there's this aspect of pain that's a human condition and that we need to figure out how do we stay within our scope as healthcare professionals, but also look at the fact that this is a, a human that's changing. You know, we... we we talked about, well, it changed the way the amygdala is working, and then it changed the way this is working, and then we try to attribute human behavior to that. And it gets all messy because even there we don't, don't even know. I know this is sort of getting into the weeds, right? But even there, you know, when you see that change in the amygdala and the hippocampus activity, is that happening at the same time as human behavior is changing? Or is the human behavior changing the way the brain's working? Or is it the brain changes, changing the human behavior? None of this stuff we know. But when you start to read people writing about this, there's nearly always one direction of it. And, and that sort of gets us mixed up. Yeah, I mean, it's the other almost like, lack of a better word, like unfortunate necessity of science. You need to reduce it to smaller components so we can study it, we can write about it. But we are more than that one component, like all of these components, how did they interact together? But it becomes so big, it's almost unsolvable of a problem for science. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and I think one of the key things if people know is sort of that it's not quite the opposite, but there's reductionism, but then the other side is emergent theory. So, and just what you said is that you never know what will emerge until you put things together. And there's some really great philosophers that are starting to do, talk more about this in, in the physiotherapy realm, uh, Peter Stilwell being one of them. And yeah, I love his analogy of talking about emergence and this whole inactivism sort of belief or view as like baking a cake. Because what happens you know, when you bake a cake, like everything matters. The combination of everything and even heat matters with that. We actually... Uh... Right now, when we're recording, it's before the release of Peter's episode, but we have a interview with Peter that's going to release in mid-January. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I'll let him explain it better than I could. Now, with all of these complexities in mind, do you ever try to explain pain-informed movement to your patient? Like, How do you introduce that concept? Or do you do that at all? I do. There are some people who will not engage with movements until they understand why and how. 
And so that person, I'm going to spend more time with more of a cognitive intervention before I get them to do the movement side. There are other people who don't want to know. Last week, this guy says to me, you know, I don't need to know how a microwave works. I just need to know how to use it. And so here's this guy who's like, you know, stop talking to me. What I want you to do is show me. And so I think that sometimes we can get an idea that this person is someone who it's the doing that's going to be more convincing. It sort of sets us in this interesting place, right, is that the proof is actually in what we do with our physical self or what happens from our behavior. But sometimes to get a person to engage in that, we need to give them information first. And other people, we just get them to do it and they do it and the changes happen and the person really does not care very much about why. But then there are other people, you get them to do things, you make the, the changes start to happen. And they're like, well, can you tell me more about this? Right? Can you explain this more? And so I actually look for research around this about, you know, are there different styles of learning? Do some people learn better through doing? Do some people learn better through a cognitive approach? And even within children, people have tried to look at this, but they, that area of research is sort of a big mess. No one's been able to show this. But it's something that seems apparent in the individual in front of us is, you know, what's going to be the right path for this person. And so my recommendation to people around this would be just ask the expert in front of you. Say, hey, I want to show you this new thing. Do you want to know why it works before I show you how to do it? Or do you want me to show you how to do it? And then I'll tell you why. And just let the person answer the question, which I think is fascinating. Is sometimes we forget we've got an expert in front of us who can guide us as to which way to go. But I think that that's a path we can do with it. So another practical consideration questions I had is, now we have these steps in place to help patient explore a potentially painful movement. How often do they need to do that? Because it is a time and lengthy process. They need to think through it. They need to answer these questions before moving one step at a time. The first part of the answer to that is that as you continue to practice it, it requires less time. You're not sort of adding more time to exercise as you continue to do it because you can do the stuff absolutely on the fly once you learn the basics of it. How long do you need to do it? You need to do it until things change. We don't know the right dose of like what's necessary to create neuroplastic change. But I would suggest that the majority of people that we work with continue to do this. This is how they now approach exercise. Rather than approaching exercises that I'm going to do 10 or I'm going to do 15, this person may say I'm going to do 10 or 15, but what they're at the same time, they're saying to themselves, they'll be checking in. Can I still keep my breath calm? Can I still keep my body calm? Do I still feel like this is safe for me to do? And the person may limit the number they do to that, or they may extend the number they do until they get to that spot where they're challenging that edge. And what it does is we teach people to decide how much do you want to challenge your edge today? Is today a day where you're going to go up to that edge where things start to get tense and are you going to actually push further in? Because the longer you practice this, the more you can go beyond the edge, right? The, you get to that first edge of the increase where you start to realize I am safe a distance in there. And then other days, the person's instead of wanting to challenge it, the person's saying, you know what I really just want to do today is I want to move my sweet zone. Right. So I'm just, you know, when I get to that edge, I'm just going to back up and I'm just going to move where I feel good because moving where I feel good has got so much value. And I think it's another piece that we want to get people to recognize is that even though you're going to need to continue on doing this, you don't need to do it all the time. Right. You don't always need to be challenging yourself. And 
I think that becomes really important with the people who you can see that their approach is always to fight. Their approach is always to push. And sometimes the best thing to do is get people to use these guidelines and say, what I want you to do is use this process to be in that sweet zone, that place where it's easy to breathe calmly. It's easy to keep your muscle tension low, where you're just barely getting to the spot where you're increasing the discomfort. So we can get people to do it different ways, but answer your question of how long, uh, for a long time. I mean, it's a different approach to movement and it doesn't take a lot of time once you start to do it. It's just the way you start to, to move around. So one of the things you mentioned is that this is one of the approaches to painful movements. How do we know that the person in front of us is responding to this approach if this takes a long time? Like, how do we know? Should we like switch to another approach, keep working at it? Mm -hmm. Again, I would say that part of the answer is in asking questions of the person you're working with. Part of the answer would be through your clinical observation. Are you seeing that the person can do this movement without their breath getting short and shallow and apical or can you see them doing it without grinding their teeth while they're doing it kind of stuff? So there's those things. Is the person able to do the movement with less protective mechanism turning on? So that would be a guide. Asking a person, are you able to do more exercise now without remaining worse? So you can get that subjective as well. But I think you typically see with this is that relatively quickly, you start to see people starting to get changes where a person is showing you that they can bend forward with more ease or lift with more ease or look over their shoulder with more ease, where you start to see that and you can actually measure it. The thing is that it seems that the nervous system requires a lot of repetition for it to change and stay changed, which is the idea of you need to keep on doing this. Although in some people it changes dramatically quickly, but most people neuroplastic change is something that takes time or maybe think bioplastic, not just neuroplastic, right? All those changes take time to change. I think one of the really interesting things is that the chemistry of neuroplasticity, so the chemistry that helps the nervous system change, as far as we understand, it's the same chemistry of when you're more active. So when you're more active, when you're doing more things, when you're more engaged with other people, that's when you get more of the chemistry that would help you with neuroplasticity. So we're trying to get the person to move more to get that, but it's going to take typically, or for most people, more time because the person's not already got the foundational stuff of neuroplasticity because they're not moving. They're not engaging with other people as, as much as normal. Is it possible to even try to put a timeline, like typically how long? No, you know, I think it really depends on, my experience would be is it depends on how much has happened to the person, how many, you know, dims still remain. You know, if you're working with someone who's lost their job and lost their house and there's all this social upheaval around this, it's going to be so hard to change this and keep it changed. So I think it becomes all those different factors fit into it. Yeah, I don't have a prediction of how long it's going to take, but it's not like you need to wait for six weeks before you see any change in this stuff. You typically, when you start to work with people, you start to see change relatively quickly, like within, like the first time you do it, the person start to be able to breathe more calm and be able to keep their muscle tension lower. And maybe even within a week, the person doing that would actually find that you've got a measurable change in some meaningful task with them. It's just a matter of how far you have to go. Right. 
I think the initial change that you can see, it's really exciting for patients. But when that change sort of like goes like up and down and up and down, and then it seemingly take forever and an ending tunnel, how do we give hope to patients? I think what we need to tell people early on are a couple different things. And one of the things is to say to the person, here's where you are, sort of when you like put one hand up and say, here's where you are. And the other hand, you put up like a foot higher and you say, this is where you want to go to. And what you're probably thinking is that your recovery is going to be a straight line between those two things. As you get better, you'll go from the slower spot up to the higher spot in the straight line. And we don't see that in chronic conditions. What we see is people getting better. It's like a roller coaster that's going up the hill. And I can't remember which pain guru said this, but it's like the shape of a Toblerone bar on a hill. That's the recovery where you get better and then you sort of go back a bit and you get better and you go back a bit. And and if we can get people to understand that that is the normal way that people get better, then you're more likely to get people to carry on. So you're still giving a message of hope, but you're also explaining this common phenomenon. In the work that I do, the other thing that I tell people early on is that when we work with people who have, you know, a persistent pain problem, you know, with the complex stuff, that there are three different outcomes that we tend to see. The one outcome that everybody wants, but the one outcome that we get is where the person says, hey, you know, the pain's mostly gone and I can pretty much do what I did before. So that's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is people saying, you know, the things you show me to do, um, my pain is less intense, it's you know, less of a problem. I can do more things, but there's still some things that I can't do and I still have pain, but I'm doing a lot more in my life now. And that's another outcome that people have. And then there's this other outcome that people will say is, you know, my pain really hasn't changed much, but you helped me get my life back. And to say to people, these are the sort of the different kind of outcomes that can happen when you have chronic pain. And, you know, for clinicians, that last group is tough to sort of, we don't want that, right? Because the person has chronic pain and they came to us for the pain. But even though we have this vast literature that says that we are neuroplastic and bioplastic, there are some people that even when we do the best things and they are engaged with what they do, there are still some people whose pain really doesn't change much. And we don't understand that, but it's still something that we see. And so telling people that there are these three valid outcomes, I think is a worthwhile thing to do at the beginning. And hopefully then that opens the door for us to have a discussion if the person's pain isn't changing very much, could we switch our focus to much more of a function and social engagement focus? Because if you can do that, it's usually what happens in the end is the pain gets better too. But we sort of get stuck in with some people trying to make the pain better so they can move more. And in some people, we need to get them to move more so the pain gets better. That's a very good point. Now, what's next with pain and foreign movement? <laughs> what's next? Well, we've started to do some research on it. So with Lisa Carlesso and some others at McMaster University, with people who have knee osteoarthritis, So we're comparing a pain-informed approach to movement for people who have knee osteoarthritis to the GLAD system. So the GLAD system is a very biomechanical approach, the language that they educate people. So we're going to use exercises that simulate the kind of GLAD thing, but give people this pain-informed education. We're actually teaching them about pain and giving them these guidelines. 
we've run that through a feasibility trial. And so everything looks good. And now we're, uh, well, Lisa's starting to work on recruiting people with knee osteoarthritis to do this. So we're stepping into an RCT now. It'll be the first thing. So Corey Blingasaf and I wrote an article on pain form movements uh, about seven years ago, I guess it was, which really was a theoretical premise article to sort of throw this idea of, could we reconcile movement therapy with pain science? Could we put those two together and, and say, what would we come up with? And we put it out there to see what the people in the pain world would say. We were happy that it didn't get trashed at all. So people saw it as a possible way that we could actually put these two things together. And so now we're, you know, as I said, we're now working on some research to try to see is if you did this, would you get the same result? Would you get the better result? I mean, it's a fascinating world, right? Because the research clearly says that it really doesn't matter what kind of exercise you do. Just get people moving and that helps people get better. So the question would be is, if we teach people this approach, would they be able to move with more ease and would that create a better improvement? Well, the one other thing I wanted to mention, one of the other approaches I think I want to share with people is this idea of the same kind of stuff we do with people who have concussion. So when a person has concussion, we use the provoke recover approach where we say to the person what we want you to do is on purpose, provoke some of those concussion symptoms on purpose. We want you to do that a number of times a day and then recover. And so we've been starting to play around with this around people who have chronic pain as well. And typically the person with chronic pain gives you that look like, are you crazy? You want me to cause my pain? We're like, yeah, we do. But we want you to provoke it a little bit, but then we want you to recover. And this is where the physiotherapy stuff can get really interesting is that to get the person to recover, to calm their breath and calm their body tension afterwards, maybe we need to get the person hooked up to a biofeedback machine, help them to be able to calm those things down or help them see that they're calming those things down. Or maybe when the person's recovering, we may need to do manual therapy or needling technique or something to help the person recover at first. Because with a highly sensitized nervous system, the person may not be able to recover well on their own at the beginning. They may need some support of us. But at the same time as we're giving them support, we're teaching them how they can get better at self-care, self-management. I get excited about that is because I think that Generally in physiotherapy world, we've gone too much hands off. The skin is this massively powerful portal through which we can change a person's nervous system and the, and the person. And we're so good with hands-on stuff. But we've, because of the fear that the person might actually get dependent on manual therapy, what we did as a profession was when we're not going to do manual therapy rather than stepping into the place of how do we mitigate this risk, right? Because, you know, could we actually support a person to help to get them to recover better? But the focus is still on movement. You still need to move it and provoke it because that's what's going to desensitize the nervous system and, and get your body healthier again. But if the pain increases, what we're going to do is help you calm it down right now. And then as time goes on, we're going to do less and you're going to do more at the recovery side. Anyway, it's, it's theoretical at this point. When I talk to clinicians about it, I'm like, it works with people with concussion. So it should work here too, but that's just theoretical. To listeners who are listening to this part and thinking about manual therapy, we do have an episode on it. Great. I think it's episode 11 on 
mobilization with movement. So it's like, how do we integrate pain science understanding with manual therapy? So that's a really cool episode to listen to. Yeah. With what you said, I mean, even with the provoke and recovery approach, mm-hmm. at least that has a great value, I feel like, to educate how people respond to flare-ups, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were provoked in a flare-up and how do we teach them to calm down and recover from a flare-up? Would you say so? Absolutely. One of the other things that's really key is that if you look at gold standard pain management, self-care is part of that. I mean, Veteran Affairs in the United States actually says self-care is tier one. That's the first thing you do with everyone is teach them how to do self-management before you even start moving up the system. But we have this idea that if I just show you how to do a breathing technique, you'll be able to go away and do it effectively. In, in other words, that that if I show you a technique that's intended to calm your autonomic nervous system down, that once you know how to do the technique, that you will be able to do that. But it's possible that in this lifetime, you may never be able to really calm your autonomic nervous system down very well. It's possible that the DNA that you came in with and the life experiences that you've had have set you up that by yourself, you cannot effectively calm down your autonomic nervous system. You need the assistance of someone else. You need co-regulation to be able to do it. I mean, and this makes so much sense for a lot of the other science that's out there. And I think this becomes really key is that, that there's so many things that as physiotherapists we can do to help the person to learn how to calm their physiology down. Even so much as getting people to do it in a group. And there are some people who can calm their physiology down in a group, but they cannot do it on their own. They need the support of the other people around them doing it. And there's some decent science that talks about autonomic synchrony, that your autonomic nervous system can sync up with other people. Anyway, my point being this is that a lot of what we're trying to do is to help to calm the autonomic nervous system down. And we have been working under the assumption that all you need to do is show the person how to do it and they'll be able to do it. And we may have missed the idea that things like manual therapy, massage, other self-care things, um, group things. Hot bath, heat pack. Yeah. I mean, because there are people who come back to us and say, you know, I, I did that thing with you and it really worked. But when I try to do it at home, it doesn't work. And sometimes we miss the fact that the relationship between us and the person may be the unique thing. Mm. Right? Because we start to look for, is it the noise that's around you? Is it the stuff that's home distracting you? All that stuff. And we forget that we are a unique input to the person. That sometimes people just need some other calm person to do this with them so that they can succeed with it. Right. Mm, That's very interesting. This may be a good place to start rounding up the discussion. Any things that we've missed? Any concluding thoughts that you have? That's a lot of information. I think we've covered all the things that I was thinking about. I think I'd probably move more towards a bit of a summary to say that these pain form movement guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. They're not rules. There's something that we have learned from people in pain who found that they worked. And what we've learned is that we can actually share it with other patients and we can share it with other clinicians and that it's fairly scalable, that, that it's a process that tends to work on a bunch of people, but doesn't work on everyone. Like, you know, nothing works on everybody, but it is informed by science. So it's got the basic biology stuff behind it and it's got clinical experience of not 
one of the things I'm, I'm very clear on, it's not just me that can make this work because I've shared it with so many people and lots of people can learn this and actually take this into the practice that they do. And we still need the research. We still need to see, would this be more effective or is it clearly just another path that you can take with people at times? And it, you know, sometimes things like this work just because of the confidence that we have when we show people how to do this or that it's a system and people like systems. We need to start to look at things like that, even though it seems to be based on what we understand about human biology and human psychology and all those things. We still need to look to see, does it give better effect? I think that's a a key thing that we want to do. If people are interested in learning more about this, there's a couple different places. You can you can look at my website. So my primary website is a website that integrates yoga and pain science. But you'll see this very same thing all over it. And the website is paincareaware.com. If you want to see a really simple process of this, my old website still has a thing called First Five Steps, and it's totally free. That website is lifeisnow.ca. And when you go in there, just click where it says first five steps free. And the steps that are in there, the first step is some education. Step two is a breathing technique. Step three is a muscle tension releasing technique. And step four will actually give you the infographic of the guidelines of move to the edge of the increase in pain. Am I safe? Will I be okay there? Can I calm my breath? Can I calm my muscle tension? So it takes you all through that completely free. So you can access it there, but you also can send patients there to get that information. That's wonderful. We will add all of these in the show notes and including any academic articles that feel relevant to include. Thank you so much for this discussion, Neil. Welcome. Glad I could share it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on pain-informed movement. I hope you learned something. To support our podcast, Please subscribe and rate it on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.